0: Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. This is the second episode in our World Cup weekly mini-series. In this episode we looked at Brazil's irreverent flair, Portugal's new dawn and Jude Bellingham's blossoming brilliance. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual, detailed way. I would, as always, direct you to the show notes where you'll find a comprehensive overview of what we covered over the course of the episode. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. If you do enjoy what we do on the podcast, please do consider subscribing to us or following us if you haven't already done so. And please do also consider leaving us a review. It would just help us to grow the podcast even more and to reach an even wider audience. All three of us would be extremely grateful if you could do so. Right, on now with the episode... Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Well, you've got me back. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not quite sure. Rui Paolo enjoyed, no doubt, his moment in the presenting. seat. Paulo, are you pleased now to, to have been relieved of the presenting duties? Or are you secretly wishing that I'd decided to take another week off the podcast?
1: Well, I'm not wishing that you had another of week off the podcast, but I did quite enjoy the the wee change of pace. I felt um very sort of powerful. Um like I like I had the had the opportunity to make or break um the conversation but inevitably <laughs> probably broke it. So good no, to have you back. No, I thought you made it Paulo with great power comes great responsibility and I thoroughly
0: enjoyed listening to the you and listening to Alan as well. It was a, an enjoyed episodes. I was in New York of course last week so I, I did contemplate the idea of dialing in from Harlem uh, or Airbnb in Harlem but I thought uh, no, better to enjoy the sights and the culture of New York. Michael Jones how are you doing? You're looking very serious. They're almost like a James Bond villain with that turtleneck on. How are you?
2: Yeah I'm not really feeling like one actually. I'm still just really giddy, almost like a kid. I think like, especially when you reach the knockouts of a World Cup, it just brings out this child in me and I'm still, um, yeah, sort of really not that right now.
0: Yeah, Michael, I do enjoy. I do enjoy listening to you speaking about the World Cup. You speak with a glee and with uh, an unbridled optimism about the World Cup, which... Uh, arguably for me anyway and perhaps for Barlow too is is, is not quite what it once was but it's, it's still there uh, residues of it are still there anyway we've got four cracking quarterfinal ties to look forward to and what we're going to do is we're going to go through those ties one by one we're going to look at w- what the teams have done well to get to where they've got to we're going to look maybe at some of the teams that have departed the tournament and yeah we're just going to have a nice fireside chat about all things World Cup. The first game uh, that we're going to look at is, yeah, a repeat of that game from the 1998 World Cup in France, which saw Dennis Bergkamp score one of the most iconic World Cup goals at the Stade Velodrome in Marseille. The game I'm talking about is, of course, Netherlands against Argentina. Michael, I'm quite keen to hear from you about how Louis Van Hal's Dutch side have evolved. I think, certainly at the start of the tournament, there were doubts about them, but they seem to be picking up pace at just the right moment, Michael, don't they?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the keys to that is they've kind of established, you kind of got an idea from watching their game against the USA that they know how they're going to approach the rest of the tournament now. They are going to be a counter-attacking team. They've got this 5 at a bat system. It's quite reminiscent to the system they deployed in his last tenure at a World Cup in 2014. And I think during the group, they kind of just went through the motions during games. Sometimes we saw, even in the opening game versus Senegal, they came on late to get an important three points. The Ecuador draw at 1-0, they almost looked a little bit too Christian And it was a much-changed team against Qatar. But I was really impressed with them against the USA. I thought that the USA came in with so much momentum into that game after a really... Impressive and you know an ecstatic end to their campaign in which they saw off Iran and leapfrogged them to qualify to enter themselves into that tie. But yeah, they just picked them off at the right moments. I mean, Denzel Dumfries was just absolutely fantastic in that game and two assists, Mm. one goal. The wing back system deployed just worked perfectly. I think what's also interesting is that not for all the players you might say maybe not for Van Dijk as much, but the five at the back seems to suit a lot of their players. A lot of them seem to have had some experience of it with some degree at club level before when you do things to the likes of um, Ake, uh, Time at Bournemouth, um, Daily Blint at Manchester United and previous IX teams and Dental Dumfries has been playing it a lot into Milan and it just looks such a well sort of regimented defence. I think going forward Cody Gappo has been one of the stars of the tournament. And I know, <coughs> sorry, I know we've talked about him. I'm not sort of entirely convinced he's this such the protege that maybe you know people comparing him to maybe James Rodriguez in 2014 again or something like that. I definitely wouldn't go that far. But he's certainly been a shining light for them in this tournament. And the timely return of Memphis Depay and the one great thing that they've been able to do so far is that they've been able to manage Depay's workload, and he's not you know played an important role in that game over the USA. But He's not been used too much and he seems to be building up fitness as the tournament goes on, which is a really exciting prospect for them. But I think they'll be really confident going into this Argentina game. Mm. I think they maybe look like they've got a bit more of a coherent game plan as it stands. And yeah, overall, I I think there's good signs. And I think the the last thing I'd say is maybe with the Netherlands, they kind of get a little bit disregarded being in Group A, playing in the first game, normally the first game of each Mm. round. That maybe they suffer from a bit of recently bias. you know, it feels a long time ago when they beat the USA. But yeah, whenever I've I've been more impressed with them by each game in this tournament generally.
0: Yeah, interesting that you mentioned Michael that euphoric end to the group stage for the United States of America. Um, I was when I was over there, I was quite keen to, I suppose, just soak up the the atmosphere and see just how much American people cared about soccer, um, as they call it. And actually, at the time of the game, we were watching the Rockettes Christmas show at Radio City Music Hall, which was quite something. Um, but when I came out of the, the theatre, I was quite surprised to, to find that there was hardly anybody uh, celebrating in the, the streets of New York. There was one guy who was kind of, whooping uh, and, and waving a flag and someone actually said to him, what's happened? Uh, a fellow American said, what's happened? So I think that did surprise me. But anyway, I've, I've digressed slightly there. Let's take it back to Netherlands against Argentina. Paul, I'll come to you now. Argentina looked for most of the game against Australia, but certainly after the first goal, they looked fairly comfortable. But then when that wicked deflection helped Australia back into the game, it did start to look a little bit uncomfortable for the... Argentinian side, Barlow. How well prepared do you think Argentina are for a much tougher opposition, arguably in the Netherlands?
1: Yeah, I have to. It's a matchup that I'm not entirely keen on for Argentina. And as I said last week, that every match is an ordeal for Argentina. Every every game is a thousand minutes long, and the emotions will run hot, uh, throughout. Rodrigo de Powell is sort of a big reason for that and he's potentially going to be missing in this game which is interesting because he was very very poor in those first couple of games but has gradually returned to form and looked very good against Australia he was he was part of the reason that they won that Mm -hmm. match and so it'll be interesting to see if he's fit and how they go about replacing him if he's not I saw someone making an interesting point and forgive me for not remembering who it was but it was essentially saying that Rodrigo De Paul is kind of like on a string with Lionel Messi that he would essentially wherever Messi went, Rodrigo De Paul would make sort of the opposite, corresponding, equal reaction. So he would go where Messi wasn't covering or where Messi might have needed a pass sort of further back, and um, which which I find a very sort of fascinating point. But overall, this Argentina team, I don't think they're going to win possibly any match down the stretch if they even if they win the whole thing by more than a goal i think it'll be tight i think Mm -hmm. the netherlands the the reason that i think this is a bad matchup for argentina is because they have a lot more power on the break and you saw that against the usa they just kind of gave the u.s the ball and and dared them to kind of break down their back line which Julian timber virgil van dijk um and Nathan Ache have been pretty solid so far. I think they looked a lot better against the US. There are, there are still gaps in it. I still think that there's a goal or two in the defence, but being able to release Denzel Dumfries against against Marcos Acuna is, is a sort of one-on-one that I really don't like for, for Argentina. And then on the left-hand side, Daly Blint is, is incredibly intelligent, and I think that doesn't help, even if Di Maria is kind of back, and he's one of the sort of key outlets and one of Lionel Messi's key sort of lieutenants in this Argentina team. So I think this is a a Netherlands side that will maybe kind of do the same thing, but for different reasons. In the sense that the US, I think they thought couldn't break them down. I think they would have struggled to to actually sort of play through them and and manage to sort of break them down. They gave the ball to the to the defenders. They gave the ball to like Sergio Dest and Zimmerman and and um and yeah, that kind of backline of the us and, and dared them to break them down and they couldn't and this Argentina side i think obviously has much larger weapons but if there's something that i think i thought would work to their advantage kind of going further in the tournament it's that other sides would perhaps be more likely to try and come out with more of the ball they would be more ambitious with the ball and that would give Argentina a little bit more space to work with it would allow them to play a little bit deeper but if this Netherlands side does the same as they did against the U.S. and Louis van Gaal seems to have, as Michael said, a bit more of a sort of an idea of what he wants to do and and how he's going to set up against sort of these better teams, then that's going to be dangerous. I think the key question for the Netherlands will be just how fit Memphis Depay is. I mean, he looked better against uh, the U.S. and and I think he's the key man for them. But as I was saying saying previously, he's he's not going to be match fit. I mean, he's played like just over three 90 minutes before the U S game uh, for the whole season. And that's basically the only 90 minutes that the only sort of games that he's had really since last November, he's not been fully fit. I think I was saying, so he's going to be working off adrenaline, essentially he's not going to be fully sharp. And so he needs to kind of rise to the moment and how they deal with him. I think his movement in and around essential defense will probably be one of the key factors on the break. Absolutely. Yeah, I think
0: it promises to be an exciting tie. And yeah, a lot of individual battles there as well to keep an eye on. Okay, moving on now to Brazil against Croatia. Paolo, I'll come to you in a moment to speak to you about Brazil. But Michael, firstly, I want to speak to you about Croatia now. They're obviously quite an experienced side. Obviously, Luca Modric is one of the most experienced operators in the game, even if I'm not a fan of his beard and moustache combination. But anyway, can they rely on that experience to prevail against a much fancied Brazil, Michael?
2: I don't know if they can, but I think they have to. I think it's almost the only thing they've got over this Brazil side, right now, in terms of their sort of World Cup experience at the very least. I mean, I've really not been that impressed with Croatia at all. I mean, even in the 2018 World Cup, at times they weren't brilliant, to be fair, but they could get through matches, but they were a lot more convincing than, you know, go, go back to the Argentina game, the England game, no way to respond to that. But some of their other knockout games against the likes of Denmark, they struggled. And that was very reminiscent of this Japan performance again, where they won on penalties. I thought Japan were a better side for large spells of the game. Croatia came on strong, a classic vintage Ivan Perisic header, which was just glorious. So it was great to see him score a third consecutive World Cup and become the first Croat player to do so. But as the game went on into extra time, you almost felt like, weirdly, Croatia was still sort of reeling from that confidence that they'd had previously from the spots and they were happy to take it to penalties again. Which you know, Japan did them three huge favors by taking three dreadful spot kicks. And like to this day, for all the stuff about World Cup nerves, I just n- never understand, you know, how seen so many sort of stuttering run ups fail, why players continue to do it, especially non-exbit, not experienced penalty takers. If it's a Fernandez or Jorginho, I'd understand a little bit more. But I mean, yeah, I've just generally not been that impressed with Croatia. I thought Belgium, you know, Belgium could have easily been the team that. Progressed instead of them in that final group game, but they're a team that really do have that camaraderie. They came into the tournament on great form. They have some of the best midfield operators in the world, in not just Modric but Kovacic, um, Broz- Maria Brozovic as well. So they've got some really really strong options there. I think their sort of game plan will be to sort of replicate what we saw the likes of maybe Serbia and Switzerland tried to do. In the group stage, where they will sit deep for large parts of the first off, which weirdly I'm not sure how actually suits them very much. I don't think they're as good as Guardiola is at the back. Lovren is a big liability next to him, and the fullbacks going forward are quite good, but I'm not quite sure if they've still got the same sort of effectiveness go uh, defensively, which is going so they're going to be hugely challenged against the likes of uh, Vinicius, Vinicius and Juranovic. Obviously, this season have already faced each other in the Champions League as well. So, yeah, I think they're going to have to just try and stay in the game. But they they kind of need to find that middle ground between sort of how South Korea played against them, where they pushed way too high, way too early on, and where Switzerland and Serbia arguably played too deep. But maybe there just isn't actually a way of playing against this Brazil side because I I think they're irresistible and maybe look the best team in the tournament right now. But yeah, they're certainly going to have to run that experience. And maybe if it gets to the second half and the scoreline's still level or it's very close, maybe that's when we'll start to see the likes. Because I think there is maybe one weakness to this Brazil side. It is that as good as Casemiro is, They, you know, and Pakatek plays deeper, another excellent player, but they maybe don't have those kind of deep-line playmakers that Croatia have, and maybe that's one area of the pitch that they can excel.
0: Absolutely, Michael. Yes, perhaps if Japan were as good at taking penalties as they are at tidying up the dressing room after a game, then, then it would be Japan taking on Brazil. But as it is, Croatia have advanced, and yeah, they will be taking on that quite scintillating Brazil team. You described them as irresistible, Michael. I'm going to now speak to Barlow. How irresistible are this Brazil team? And yeah, I, I suppose we obviously saw the Portugal performance last night, but are Brazil the team for you, Barlow, that, that are impressing the most, that are, yeah,
1: lighting up this World Cup, preferably? Honestly, no. I think the team that's given me the most sort of room for encouragement in terms of how I think they'll do is probably France. Brazil are probably a close second behind that, but I do, I, I'm sort of, I, I feel like you can only play what's in front of you. And Brazil have been very good when called upon, but I still have my doubts about them. And I I think that if you look at the opposition and the way that they've won these games, okay, so they beat a, a Serbia side that proved themselves to be pretty defensively flawed a couple goals to nil and that was a bit bit of a hard hard work kind of task and then Switzerland game i thought that i think it's unfair to call them fortunate to win that game but certainly you wouldn't have batted an eyelid if switzerland had got a draw in that match and obviously then they fell to a, a hammering against portugal which i certainly didn't expect but but yeah you saw in the swiss game that a solid defense can sort of give them issues then a the cameroon game albeit they lost that game i think that was probably their best performance and they were highly unfortunate to lose that because uh because they wasted i don't think I've, I've rarely seen a team waste so many chances in a game as brazil did then but kind of the pressure was off them and then this game against south korea south korea obviously just played so far into brazil's hands it was almost i mean it was almost kamikaze in a sense in the fact that like if if what they had planned to come off, it would have looked fantastic, but the chances of them executing it perfectly were so slim. And you saw even at times when they did look as if they, they were going to give Brazil problems, Human Son was just closed down and shut out. And I, I think South Korea made it very, very easy for them. They essentially went four on four at times for for points in the first half, even when when they were only a couple of calls down. And, and yeah, I, I struggled to take too much from that South Korea performance. I think this Brazil side has room to improve still, even though that sort of South Korea performance was very, very good. I, yeah, I, I struggle to look at that and, and take it too seriously, in a sense, just because, because of the way the play game played out. And I think for all of these big sites, especially the ones with firepower, so I'm talking about France, and talking about England, I'm talking about Portugal in their case, and, and Brazil as well. For all of those teams, if they go a goal up, then you're in big trouble and they can relax, they can play more freely. I feel like it really takes the weight off them. As When you have them nil-nil or, or with their goal behind, I think they play a lot differently. I think the match is entirely conditioned by that first goal. And I think this Brazil team, there's still holes to get at them. And they have more firepower than anyone else with perhaps the exception of France. And so that makes them a chief contender. And it wouldn't be a surprise to, to myself or anyone if they went on to win this. But even this Croatia game, I think, like Michael said, this Croatia team hasn't been entirely impressive. But I think they've got enough ability to to cause some issues potentially if the game sort of stretches out into the into the latter minutes and they're still level. But but yeah, it's hard to see who's stopping them really before the semi final right now. And it has to be said that they look clear, clear favourites against Croatia.
0: Indeed, Paulo. Indeed. You mentioned that you'd been impressed by France, which I think takes us on quite nicely to their mouthwatering tie on Saturday night against England. Now, one of the main talking points, certainly when it comes to the French, is the fact that so far this tournament, they haven't kept a clean sheet. They were denied a clean sheet in the closing seconds of the game against Poland, but nevertheless, they, they couldn't see out the game and keep that clean sheet. How much of a hindrance, do you think that will be as we now progress into the deeper stages of the tournament? And, yeah, to what extent does that represent a real worry and concern for the French and for Didier Deschamps?
1: Yeah, I think it'll be highly interesting to see how Deschamps goes about it, because this is a Deschamps that's been criticised heavily by by, I think almost the entire footballing world for being so conservative for being so defensive for perhaps getting selections wrong. And even though the side has Adriano Rabiot in it, which is um a point of contention for many, even though this side is, it's got sort of Teo Hernandez in it, and it's, it's an injured side. There's no Pogba, there's no Conte. They do look defensively weaker, but they look far more coherent as a team and as an attacking force, it's, Hard to see how a team can keep them out for for ninety minutes or so. And apart from that Tunisia game, which as we know they were resting players in, they've really looked almost unstoppable. And when Mbappe is in that form, where he can literally just take a touch inside and thump it into sort of the roof of the net, that's that's nigh on impossible to stop almost for ninety minutes. And then you add into that Dembele who we have spoken about extensively on this podcast he's uh, erratic at times but he is always a game breaker and he always has one or two moments per game that will sort of uh, open up the field and if you have Mbappe on the other side that just brings more space for him and so you've got the two of them who are very good in space behind them you have Antoine Griezmann who who's been just exceptional I think he's the least flashy forward at this tournament perhaps Mm. but maybe even the best. I mean, this Antoine Griezmann that's been playing well for Atleti, we've seen how good he's been, but he's been playing on a very poor Atleti side and still kind of sustaining them, putting in one, two, three balls a game that could potentially be finished off. And he is orchestrating this France side behind that kind of front line, along with Cheroux who, who provides sort of a valuable fixed point for Mbappe, Dembélé, Griezmann, Teo Hernandez to, to aim at. And so, so, yeah, as an attacking force, they look almost unstoppable. If somebody can stymie them, that will be a problem. So I think it'll be interesting the battle against England because Southgate will inevitably I think go fairly defensive against this France side, and that's what we've not really seen is if France do get stifled because against Poland, I think they were fairly early in the game. you could see that there was space for them, they took the lead and and sort of from there on, it didn't even really look like a contest at points against australia they went to go down but got back on level terms fairly quickly and there was a lot of space to work with against them as well they managed to break australia down fairly quickly and against denmark who yeah i mean we had our doubts about we sort of thought i think everyone kind of thought that they'd be pretty good but this denmark side they they put up a good fight against france but france always had an extra gear so so, yeah, if they do get stymied, if they do get kind of knocked off their game, it'll be interesting to see that because I do think there's a goal against them for every every other team. It's just whether you can keep them out at the other end and whether Deschamps decides to sort of um, are if he t- decides to sort of step off a little bit from the attacking, free-flowing performances that he's been given so far. Indeed. Now, Michael, I'll come to you to look at one
0: player in particular on the England squad Um, I'm quite keen to focus the road to nowhere spotlight on a certain Jude Bellingham I know that we're not going to be the only ones to be focusing a spotlight on the former Birmingham midfielder but he has done as we tipped him to do in our preview episode let's not forget he has been fantastic he has stepped on to the biggest international scene and he has delivered how important Will he be for England on Saturday night? And I suppose, more generally, what is his ceiling? What is the 19-year-old's ceiling?
2: Yeah, I think Barlow talked about how uh, central Griezmann is to France. And although they play different roles and different positions, I think that's almost what Bellingham is to England at the moment. Because, you know, in England, for years really, probably since Gerard and Lampard, and neither of them were able to replicate it on an international stage as such, finding that kind of transitional player from taking defence until attack, which was just perfectly showcased in England's second goal versus Senegal when Bellingham beats one of the Senegal midfielders to a header, which comes from a deflected cross, I think which leads in it, it, then leads to the second goal. And I remember when he got the ball and started running with it midway through his own half, I, I just felt straight away that England were going to score because he was going to sort of create the spaces both with his run and with his pass, which he ended up doing. But yeah, I mean, he he's he's going to be so important. And I think he's going to be not just really important in terms of his own individual performance, but Ballingham's performance could almost dictate if he can step it up even more, which he will have to against France, could even dictate how England play against France. I think there's a really interesting point Barlow touched on at the end there where you mentioned about sort of how Deschamps, whether he will kind of become a little bit more conservative um, with his French approach, with the France with France's approach when they can play England. And it's almost a given to many people that that will be England's approach to the game as well. But I mean, for large spells, they were quite conservative against Senegal. So I think it'll be quite a similar type of display and I think it's going to be really fascinating I mean we just quickly before I go into sort of Bellingham a little bit more the one bit I'm really concerned about is an Mbappe versus Walker I think Walker will give him a good run for his money and will certainly be his toughest opponent but um, Luke Shaw versus Usman Dembele just looks such a mismatch in terms of pace um, in terms of sort of Shaw's defending ability versus Dembele's attacking ability I think that could be one of France's most dangerous avenues In that game, unless they go to about five and maybe try to counteract it in some form. But yeah, Bellingham's always compared, and you know, I have in some way I've kind of compared him in terms of what he can do with a ball to the likes of Lampard and Gerrard, and that's who he always falls into conversation to. I mean, in terms of how good I think he can be, and in terms of who I would compare him to. He kind of reminds me a bit of Zidane in terms of the way he sort of glides through the middle of the park. And it's not a comparison I've heard too much. And, you know, maybe it's insulting to Zidane because I haven't quite seen Bellingham's chest control to be anywhere near that of Zizou's. But in terms of what he reminds me of as I watch a player play in the way he kind of sort of effortless, effortlessly sort of glides past players. I think, you know, he, he certainly should, you'd think at this stage he'll be in the equation for the Ballon d'Or in the not too distant future and obviously from um, an English perspective and given he comes from the same place as my dad, I really hope he does.
0: Yeah, certainly a, a likeable player, Jude Bellingham, speaks with great eloquence and yeah, definitely a player who I'm quite happy to see do well. Okay, we'll be concluding the episode shortly, but we do have one game left to look at and that is of course Portugal against Morocco. Bravo, can I come to you for a quick word on the quite brilliant performance from Gonzalo Ramos? He shot out all the noise that was the benching of Cristiano Ronaldo and produced, yeah, a remarkable performance, scoring a hat trick in that six-one win over Switzerland. How
1: how impressed were you by by the forward, Barvo? Yeah, he was excellent, wasn't he? He was he was really, really I don't think you could mm. say that he's anybody's risen to an occasion quite like Goncalo Ramos has in that match. I mean, three goals, he'd only played I think it was 33 minutes of international football previously, so if Mm -hmm. you add that into the 67 minutes or so he had against Switzerland, that's about 25 minutes per international goal, which is not bad going, and takes him to four goals in four games. Yeah, this Portugal side, I think beyond Ramos himself and beyond Ronaldo, which is difficult because he finds his way back into the headlines by hook or by crook um, you you saw a Portugal side that looked coherent and it looked again, Fernando Santos, same thing with Didier Deschamps, he's been criticised from pillar to pillar about the, the fact that this is a Portugal side that's packed with talent but plays conservatively, plays without the kind of zest and imagination that the players have within their locker and yet we've Gonzalo Ramos on the side, we saw Joao Felix released, we saw, we saw Bernardo Silva, we saw Bruno Fernandes playing sort of at their best level and they really took Switzerland apart and I think Gonzalo Ramos, his movement, the way that he pressed, the, the sort of space that he opened up for others, really sort of, it looked like it was the unlocking of a door for this Portugal side. Whether Santos is brave enough to continue benching Ronaldo, that remains to be seen whether a more, uh, what's what's the word, officious or, or studious defence might pay a bit more attention to Ramos and might be able to stifle Portugal a bit better. You would have to hope so because Switzerland did a, a terrible job of doing so. But but yeah, Gonzalo, Ramos, I mean, you got to see it for, for more time than we did, but for 67 minutes, that couldn't have gone better for either Santos or Ramos.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Barlow, it was... I don't know if you were thinking the same, but when Ramos went through on goal and scored his hat trick, I was—I don't think I've ever wanted a player to to be onside as much as I did then. You know there was a a slightly awkward wait while we, uh yeah, waited to hear whether or not Ramos was indeed onside. But when when the goal was given, I was yeah really happy for him. I think, well, you can imagine the nerves he must have been feeling, even if he didn't show said nerves, but the nerves in in stepping up and essentially replacing Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, there must have been some butterflies in his tummy at least, but he he more than delivered. Okay, Michael, Portugal will be playing Morocco, who have, of course, only conceded one goal throughout the tournament. They have quite a mean defence, to put it lightly. Do they have what it takes to become the first ever African nation to reach a World Cup semi-final, Michael?
2: I think, Everyone will be almost writing them off given what the Spain game took out of them. You could tell by the number of injuries. You know, Romance, former Wars player, you know, player I've come to love over the last few years, looked like they'd literally kind of taped his hamstring on for those last few minutes against Spain, as it looked like he pulled it. But yeah, it was a real struggle and you saw sort of how effortlessly Portugal just breezed past Switzerland. But They will take a lot of confidence. I mean, for what it's worth, I thought that Switzerland team were terrible. I know they'd had a lot of problems with injuries and illness in camp. And I think, to be honest, that did really show as good as Portugal were. And this is going to be a far sterner opposition for Portugal as it proved to be for Spain. And I I do I think they're so regimented and they know exactly what they're doing. And, you know, this is, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, given the age of the players, a lot of them are around that 30, late 20s, early 30s, this is their once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I, I think that Portugal are certainly going to control the game and ask questions, but... The one thing they may take more confidence from is from the group stage games because teams did adopt a similar approach, especially South Korea, against a weakened Portugal team, albeit, and get results. Uruguay also had chances with a similar approach, not probably the best approach to Uruguay, but they had chances, you know, even at 1-0. And I think there is there is there is reason to be... I mean, why, why wouldn't Morocco be positive? I think they, the momentum seems to be there. I think... For what it's worth, I think Portugal may be the strongest team in the competition at the moment. But I think that's maybe the body england france one for obvious reasons. I think that's the quarterfinal final I'm most excited for because I really don't have an idea how it's going to play out. It sounds simple of saying Portugal have the ball, Morocco have to have a low block and defend. But I think there's going to be more to it and some of the individual battles will be really fascinating.
0: Absolutely. And I think as well, the support from Morocco against Spain was, was quite vociferous, to put it one way. Um, I think there's there's an entire continent behind Morocco. I think a lot of neutrals will be behind Morocco. And yeah, they've, as you see, got a very mean defence with a couple of players up top who, yeah, they're perhaps not the most consistent, but they can produce a moment of magic. And if you can keep a team out, all you need is one moment of magic so yeah definitely one to look forward to certainly from the narrative perspective I think in terms of goals I can't see it being a thriller in that regard but certainly like a game of chess this one Uh, so definitely one to watch out for okay well quite simply we have four mouthwatering quarterfinals four tantalising quarterfinals and we've gone through them at a fairly brisk pace there we try to keep these World Cup weekly episodes nice and short for you so do enjoy the four games. We will be back next week for a review of those four games and a preview of the what's still to come. And until then, stay safe, stay well. I will say thank you to Rudy Bow and thank you to Michael Jones and thank you to you, the listener. Goodbye. <laughs>